0: Well, good evening everybody. It's really nice to have you come out on this, well, I guess it's a bit of a rainy summer, early summer evening, and we're not even officially summer yet, but uh, we're hoping it starts behaving like summer more. Um, my name is Jim Byrne. I'm a professor here at the University of Lethbridge, and I was asked to uh, chair the meeting tonight, so I'm going to be here, uh, and I think I think the community came up to me and said, Jim, we need somebody your size to chair this meeting. <laughs> And I I don't think we do, but I think, think, uh, you know, what we're looking forward to is a a really objective, positive exchange of ideas, um, you know, and and have people really share what their concerns are and keep to the facts and keep to to the issues, and that's really very much appreciated. So the discussion tonight, and this is Southern Alberta Council of Public Affairs that's hosting this, are there better options to settle the blood tribe farmland disputes than going through the courts? Um, we've got a couple of speakers tonight. I'm gonna read a background document that was given to me. Uh, on Calgary, in Calgary, on Friday, March 7, 2014. The Blood Tribe announced that the federal court ruling, a federal court ruling had been made on the Blood Tribe Farmland Judicial Review regarding Hanger Farms Limited. In summary, the court's judgment was that the decision not to renew permits for hanger. Farms Limited was quashed, and the matter was referred back to Chief and Council for reconsideration and to decide on the matter in accordance with a set of directions it must follow. The Blood Tribe Chief and Council have diligently reviewed that decision, and are taking further steps to determine the impacts of of this decision and their next steps. The best interests and the integrity of the Blood Tribe, including all members and land occupants, was the priority of this review today and will form the basis of our next steps, said Chief Charlie Weaselhead. The tribe recognizes the importance of timing in this manner and will continue to work towards a fair result for the betterment of the blood tribe, its members, and its lands. Further information is to be provided regarding next steps and will be shared as it comes available. On Lethbridge, on May 28, 2014, Court of Queen's Bench judge granted the Blood Tribe an interim injunction, injunction against Eugene Fox, Harry Groton, and Groton Hay Farms Limited. This injunction means that both Fox and Groton will not be allowed to conduct any agricultural operations on the lands formerly occupied by Floyd Fox until the trial of the action or mutual resolution has been reached. The court found that the blood tribe's claim was not frivolous or vexatious and that there was a serious issue for a trial in this, matter, in this matter. The court also found that in the circumstances the tribe had shown that irreparable harm would result if the injunction was not granted, including instability generated in the community, the collective needs of blood tribe members not being met, and risk that blood tribe land management would be hampered by not being able to maintain orderly conduct of farming operations, orderly conduct farming operations and loss of reputation in the marketplace. The court also determined that it was in the public's best interest that, that the land registry systems and policies and procedures of the blood tribe be followed. <clears throat> the order not only only affects the agricultural operations on the land, on the lands as the blood tribe did not seek any interim order relating to the residential portions of the lands. The next steps that are required in this matter are the filing of a defense by Fox and Groton Hay Farms and an exchange of evidence, and the parties would then have an opportunity to question each other prior to it being set for trial. The trial of this matter may be set for some point in the future unless the parties are able to reach a resolution. Fox advised the court that he was reserving his right to appeal. On June 10, 2014, this I went over to Council of Public, Public Affairs. That, I us. We'll is hosting a debate. Are there better options for settling the blood tribe farmland disputes than going through the courts? Um, so I think I'll, I'll end that there. Tonight, my understanding is, is uh, Sackboth um, got involved in to hold a public discussion and see what, what other options might take place. Um, there's th- there were to be three speakers tonight. Um, I think at this point there is not representation from the band, is my understanding. Um, but there are two speakers who are pleased that you did come up to hear them, and uh, we're going to give them each about 20 minutes to present their concerns, uh, and then we'll have a, a discussion, question and answer session. So, let me tell you about the first um, speaker. Lois Frank, who most of us know. Uh, Lois is a PhD candidate at Gonzaga University, has her BSc and MA. Um, she's a member of the Blood Tribe and is uh, completing her PhD in Environmental Justice from Gonzaga in Washington. She's worked at a, as a lecturer in the Native American Studies department at the University of Lethbridge. She's also taught in the Criminal Justice program at Lethbridge College. Lois has received many certificates for her achievement, including the Alberta Jubilee Medallion from the Alberta Solicitor General and she is a past chairperson of the Blood Tribe Police Commission in 2011, oh, in 2011, sorry, period, after commission. In 2011, Lois received the Environmental Activist of the Year Award from the Council of Canadians and is currently a national board member of that organization. She was recently part of a group that won a federal court decision regarding land occupant rights on the flood reserve. Ladies and gentlemen, I present our colleague, my friend, Lois Farce. I don't think I
1: really need a microphone. you to <laughs> Well, I'd like to thank you for uh, inviting me here, and I know a lot of you, um, but uh, one of the things I'd like to, I'd like to thank the Blood Tribe Councils, because they give me more time to speak, since they're not represented here tonight, but uh, (coughs) why we're here, I think it goes way beyond... um, Land disputes, family disputes, neighbor disputes on the blood reserve. This is a much bigger issue. And people um, from our communities have to really get involved uh, because the land is very pivotal to our culture. And I th- I think what we're gonna do is I, I'll do a lean in for you know what's happening on the reserve. And this isn't just happening on the blood reserve, this is happening all over Canada. So, for many people, you know, that uh, have been involved in these court cases, it isn't about individuals. I uh, want to mention that again. It's not about families, and it shouldn't be. It's a much bigger issue. Uh, Most people fought really hard In my, when I taught university classes, did anyone had a phone on that to sing? (laughs) So, um, you know, we need to look at this from a much larger perspective, because um, a lot of the policies that have been geared towards Native people have been engineered a long time ago. The residential schools are just an example of that, and now we see this new uh, bill C33 is that the name of it, you know that it's uh, it's controversial. It's about education. These are things that have been happening for many years, and I think the role of our leadership is to really weigh these. You know, is it important enough? For us to uh, to deal with it in a in a good way. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to talk about um, custom land and property rights of the place. I don't want to get into uh, so much the court uh, issues, although I will deal with it a little bit. Um, and I'll, I have about 24 slides here. Remember, I'm used to teaching two-hour classes at the university, so. You know, bear with me, a lot of these are pictures, and I'll try to go quickly uh, so that we can have some kind of discussion. Over the years, uh, I've taught Native American Studies, and um, I've had to learn a lot about our laws, our rights. I taught Aboriginal law and government. I taught criminal justice. I taught many different types of courses. And it was always an education for me to learn you know, what was happening to our people. So I'll take you through this, and if you have any questions, you know, I'd be most happy to answer them. Um, do you want me to just continue and then take questions later? I think so. Yeah, I think so. We'll... we'll like okay. Go. All right, and this is... This slide is kind of blinding me, so I'm going to move over here. This is a <laughs> picture of Treaty 7. Uh, most of us um, have a lot of uh, respect for the uh, people that signed these treaties, because they kind of gave a framework for us. But before the treaties were signed, we had custom. Does anyone know what custom is? It's something that's been debated. I'll, I'll put the question out. Anyone have an idea of what custom is? You do through the years and you to, uh, you over it goes you yeah. so hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. A, it's a, maybe it's an unwritten law. And sometimes when we talk about custom, it's things, they, local laws that apply a long time ago. A long time before government, colonization. So when we talk about custom, you know, it's something that people use very loosely. But it's a way to understand what was happening in, that, in our communities. Some of the issues that I'd like to discuss, uh, and I'll just, you can look at them here. I've got slides on all of these sort of a historical background, um, going back, and I won't spend a whole lot of time on the BNA Act, the Royal Proclamation, although I'd like to to uh, look at that a little bit. The uh, Indian Act, many of our people, as I was teaching these courses, used to believe that the treaties of the Indian Act were the same thing. And they're not. And what I'd like to cover is some of the authority of chief and council, the lands... Uh, and it's very nifty because a lot of these are crowned, considered to be crown land. And that's the debate. Are these held in common for all the people or do individuals have rights? And I think that's what it comes down to. Do individuals have rights or are we like, um, you know, a deer on the prairie, you know, he's kind of forage and... That's kind of the impression that people had about Aboriginal people, that we had no rights. So, I wanted to uh, put that in context, look at some of the legal issues, economic, some of the court decisions. It's unfortunate that a lot of these have to be resolved in the courts. Under custom, people used to resolve things among family members. The leaders, you know, would be responsible for taking care of the people. But unfortunately we're losing that or we've lost some of that with the imposition of a new type of government under the Indian. So we've lost some of those customary uh, traditions that we had. So, (coughs) under custom with the Bloods, we had many different bands. We had these, this is just uh, some of them. The fish eater, the many children, the lone fighters, many of these bands. it's been said that there were up to 27 bands at one time, but they all originated from the ancient band, which was the followers of the buffalo. That was one of the oldest ones, and so it was very democratic. If you didn't like your leader, opposing him was like my chief, and I, you know, I disagreed with him. Well, I could move to keep band or clan. It was very de- democratic in that people voted with their feet. Right now, we're kind of stuck in a community and we have four year terms and I'll get into that in a little bit. But under custom everyone had a say. Everyone had a right to speak out and were listened to by their leaders. And if I if Canute didn't listen to me I might go to Rebecca's band or something. But I you know it, it was very democratic and you could you could practice your vote, you know, in those days. And if you found that, uh, you know, you, were, you weren't a very effective leader, one morning you might wake up and everybody had moved hand from you. That was how people voted with their So, you know, but people made decisions by consensus. They had to agree. And that was what made it so unique. Nowadays, you know, sometimes our leaders, they don't really listen to us. An example is the AFN, you know, what happened with this education bill at Leo Quint and there was disputes over this education act which was launched on the Blood Reserve when Harper came this past year and nowadays people don't really have a say and it's important, it's just like parenting, never notice how your kids act up when you don't listen to them or you ignore them? That's what's happening in our community. But unfortunately, what we're seeing are a lot of social ills because of this. It isn't following custom. And so some people have said, you know, or suggested that we go back to this. I don't know what the alternative is. Maybe having a government that really responds to the people is the way to go. But this is just an example of custom. I could... Go on and on about custom, but uh, that's for another day. As most of you know, uh, a lot of these cases that are going before the courts have to do with constitutional rights. And where do where do we? Why is that important? Because under and everyone benefits from the constitution. Indian people are are subjects of the crown. We were protected by these early royal proclamations, and there's two, one that was written in 1763 and the other in 1869. And they were just proclamations. They proclaimed the existing law, and they protected uh, the Native people, the crown of Great Britain. Under these proclamations, agreed that Indian people would be safe, their property would be safe. And they had a duty to respect and protect aboriginal rights. Um, So we see this, and this is just a kind of a a chart. (laughs) You have to turn it around. We have charter rights. We have human rights. We have the Constitution uh, of 1982 that was repatriated. But prior to that, we had the Royal Proclamation. (laughs) We had the Constitution Act of 1867. So those are what form the basis of our rights today. The rights that we enjoy as black people. So when I talk about the Constitution, A lot of Native people have to really understand what that's all about. Because the Constitution protects everyone, not just Aboriginal people. It protects everyone. It's the supreme law in Canada. And when we look at the Indian Act, the Constitution basically states that if, if there are laws that are inconsistent, then they are of no force or effect. So if the Indian Act has sections that are not consistent with the Constitution, then there are no force and effect. And a lot of what we see today, the problems that we're seeing in our communities, is because the Indian Act is pretty old and we're still operating with that. Any questions so far? I guess I should you understand that under the Constitution Act, all people are equal? Yeah, but Aboriginal people are mentioned in about three places under the Constitution. So, the rights, you know when they repatriated the Constitution, they had to maintain the protection that they had a long time ago for Aboriginal people. So, but the Constitution is is, uh, something that protects everybody. When we look at the history, and I hope for some of you this isn't old news, but under the BNA Act of 1867 and the Royal Proclamation, and as I mentioned, there were two Royal Proclamations. They were the um, they were the one the uh, they established the property rights of Indians because they had to under the Royal Proclamation. They could not have come to Canada and negotiated land treaty if they didn't acknowledge that Indian people had property rights and land rights, So this is why you almost have to reach behind that to understand uh, property rights. It's the earliest agreements between the Indians and the Crown of Great Britain. A lot of uh, people make the comparisons with the U.S. but the U.S. operates under a different system. We're still uh, governed by the laws of Great Britain that Canada now uh, exercises. So, I mean, if you reach behind, you know, the custom of the people was there long before these came into effect. But they still protect us today. And there's Rupert's Land, which was, now is Canada the Hudson Bay Company, and for those of you who, you know, understand the history of Canada, uh, much of this land had to be negotiated in order for for people to enjoy the benefits that they do. Greta, you have to sing a song. For <laughs> <laughs> you should see what I used to do to my students. When we look at the treaties, and this is what teaching Native American studies, you know, really, I used to have a, a lot of fun teaching these courses because, you know, some of the assumptions that our own people have about, many times they think, we just started at the treaties. No, you know, we go way back, all those bands I showed you. We go way back, way beyond this. But Treaty 7, if you look at that today, Many people still hold those treaties as sacred documents. Sacred. As long as what are the clauses of the treaties? As long as the sun shines the rivers flow, the grass grows. That's how long the treaties, you know, are going to last. But now with climate change, I don't know. A bit <laughs> <laughs> and the sun might not shine. Because, uh, but don't get me started on the environment. You know, what Jim failed to mention was how we got, how we met, and knew, and something. you know what? I had the notoriety of standing in front of twenty-five frac trucks, and so being a police commission chair being a good girl all my life, and then going to jail and being arrested for standing in front of these rat truck. So that was kind of, you know, there was a lot of comical events, and Anna Joyce was with me at that time to uh, one of these sites. But, you know, one of the things that we really need to maintain is to protect the land the air, the water. That's what we grew up with. We are stewards of the land. And we are not just subject to somebody's policies. It's kind of exciting to... I'm on different websites, and I hear about all these native people that are, you know, protesting the Enbridge, you know, the Keystone, you know, the... uh, in New Brunswick. All these bands, all these people are standing up for the environment, which is really, really... Nice to see. But our lands are so valuable that we really need to protect them. But we're getting kind of caught up in the whole monetary capitalist system that we're living in. And land isn't just about money. It's it's there to protect us, it feeds us. We even had Blackfoot terms for the earth. So You know, this is why this is really important to see beyond what we are currently going through and to fight for those rights. The Indian Act, after the treaties, I have a lot of these cartoons. Trust me, the Indian Act is intact. And Everett Soup was one of our famous cartoonists. I used to have fun with the guy because he was... He was uh, in a wheelchair, he was disabled, but he used to almost get beat up in council because of his cartoons, his editorials, but he spoke the truth in many cases. Um, And I recall seeing a a cartoon of somebody waiting to see council and there were talk all over this skeleton. (laughs) He really got into trouble for that. But anyway, the Indian Act was really, like, like the treaties were the handshake about our lands, our rights, but the Indian Act was a manual that was created even before Treaty 7 was signed. It was was in place in 1876, so they already knew what they were going to do even before the treaty was signed. The Indian Act has been um, one of the most, I guess, detrimental uh, pieces of uh, legislation. Because what it did was, it was meant to be a social engineering project. To destroy our tribal structures, like they talked about custom, To destroy governments, like all those bands or plans, some people call them. It was meant to destroy our membership. You had to have, uh, they started to have left quantum, and they started to have different ways to to tell you who could be like in new bank you know, you had to have uh, two parents who had uh, who were registered, and then it wasn't about blood quantum because blood quantum happened in the U.S., but in Canada, if your parents were well parents were both registered under the Indian Act, then you were a six one. If you had a parent who wasn't registered, they were a six two. And the formula goes on and on. But the strange thing is, if you have 2 six twos, they could their child could be a 6-1, which is full raised. It doesn't make sense. But it was designed to do away with our membership, our leadership as well, and our territory, especially our land where Indian people were placed on reservations in the U.S. reserves in Canada. So all of this was done to take the Indian out of the Indian. And when you look at the Indian Act, it's still in place today. It's about this thing. When it was first designed, it was only about 20 pages. Now it's huge. So that's what we're faced with now. And it's designed to destroy a lot of communities. The membership, as I mentioned. In the past, if Canute was my friend, and I keep thinking on Knut, if he was my friend, I could adopt him into my band, or my clan. Because I like him, and he was a good guy. And he became a member of my gang. But today, you know, it's causing uh, paranoia in communities, like I talked to somebody in Hobima, one of the leaders, they said their children are afraid to marry outside their community because they might lose their status. Which is unhealthy. You know, we used to welcome other people the crows, you know, all these different people from different communities, so that they are trying to grow and be healthy and creative. But today we're still under this Indian Act and it's it's kind of place a hold on us.
0: Well, I, I, just, I was actually told to give you about 20 to 25 minutes. That would mean you just about exactly About 10 more minutes. Okay. okay. If something started. from council shows up, I'll. <laughs> I'm just going to go through
1: this quickly then. You can read my PowerPoint. You know, the size of the reserve, 540 square miles, and then we've got timber limits by the, Mount, the Rocky Mountains. And we had a huge territory from Fort Benton to Edmonton to the Rockies to the Sand Hills, Saskatchewan. That's how big our territory was. But Indian people, it's been said, were at a disadvantage because they didn't know about mortgages and property rights. <laughs> people thought we all share the land. And, you know, you can have territory. The Royal Proclamation established that we had territory and land. So, uh, when we look at how big our territory was for it to be what it is now, it's unhealthy in a way because you're trying to fit 11,000 people into that land base. At the signing of the treaty there might have been 2,000, 1,000 people. And the reserve was designed to be, the formula was one square mile per family of five. So, You know, it's unhealthy and there's becoming more and more disputes over between the occupants and the non-land occupants. And I'll get to that. How much time? Ten minutes? I don't know if I can... (laughs) Authority of the Chief and Council. You know, people forget that when the Indian Act was established, governments were put under that. Even though some say they're elected under custom. There's a few banks that say they're elected. And they are, but they still follow the Indian Act. They get their money from government. So, they're elected by the people, but they serve government. They're considered to be federal boards and tribunals, which means that they're subject to federal law. This is why this court case that came about when uh, we went to federal court, it was not about... Yeah, it can It was about our rights as people, as Indian people. So uh, in the Indian Act it makes reference to uh, farms, to uh, the powers of the council, and we follow that today. Individual rights, many people, and this is where you know the the argument is. I've heard right in court The council can do whatever they want to whoever they want, whenever they want. And some people here heard that. You know, the lawyer, the chief and council lawyer, got up in front of the judge and said, Your Honor, council has inherent authority. The lands are held by the tribe, by the chief and council, and they can do whatever they want to whoever. And the judge had to stop her and say, Excuse me, did you just say that? That they can do whatever they want to do, but they're a federal board, so they have to follow those laws. Um, individual rights, you know, it, it's uh, you know the uh, consent. They're elected by the people, but they serve government. And you've heard of the straw man concept, you know, that the government uses these straw men, scarecrows to enforce what they want. That's what's happening today in our community. So remember the straw man concept. Individuals, it's always being argued. You have no rights. You have no rights to property, to land, whatever. And this is where it becomes very iffy. If non-natives were able to homestead in Alberta and Canada and occupy lands, do improvements, grow trees and all, all of those types of things. Then they own their land. As I drove to Pincher Creek this past week I saw all these farms and people called four wheel drive tracks and all these different They have acquired their own self-sufficiency, their own wealth. But if you go onto the reserve you rarely see them. You might see a house and that's it. Because we cannot use our land to borrow. We can't. And this is where it becomes very... Indian people live in almost abject poverty. We cannot become wealthy people because of a lot of these laws that are in place. And we're in a society today where we're expected to look after ourselves, our children. But because of these laws, you know, we, we're hampered. I'm just going to quickly go through these because I uh, I would like to uh, give Eugene a chance to speak. Those MOUs are signed between the occupants, like I'm an occupant. And I don't have a whole lot of land, but I, you know, I sign with the farmer. And those have always been honored by the council. They send these MOUs, we send them to council, and they send them off to Edmonton and then to Ottawa. And so these agreements, they're called MOUs, are signed between the occupant and the farmer. But what's been happening this past year is new policies came in, or somebody said that they should change, without consulting the people. They uh, increased the cash rent that the farmer had to pay to $75 from $45. And occupants and a white farmers, this doesn't mean that term, have to each pay 5% administration fee. But this past year, the uh, lands people decided to increase the rate for the farmers. And that's like a tax, you know, almost 19 20%. Who gave them the authority to tax occupants? It's just like if I go to the administration and say to workers, you have to start paying taxes. But, you know, nobody was asked. Same thing with the occupants. So uh, that's where the, some of the dispute came into play. Um, the These MOUs, there's a lot you could say about them. They're uh, it's been argued in federal court that these are not legally binding documents. They're merely internal documents. But if they've been acknowledged in the past, then they are enforced. And that's what the federal court decision said. I mean, I, I like, yeah, that, but it was about our rights. Because people have been saying, in order to satisfy the non-land occupants, we're going to send the money to a capital account in Ottawa and it will be distribution. Nobody will own or have occupancy rights. They'll just get a distribution at the end of the year, which might be $300 or something like that. There are dangers without really looking at this more carefully. Um, public consultation. I talked about the tax. Um, These uh, these agreements were terminated with Jack Henninger without even getting uh, the principles of natural justice. Somebody has a right to be heard. Somebody has a right to a trial or anything. But they just simply said, you're out of here, which concerned a lot of occupants because not only the relationship that they had with the farmer, but it was about, how come you didn't ask me? Why did you do this without asking me? Why did you increase those rates? Why are you taxing without asking us? So those are some of the questions that came about. Um, The legal issues, um, and I could go into this because we spent a lot of time in court, but we got a a decision from the federal court judge within a month. It had to happen very quickly. So... You know, there was no referendum on all of this. It was just done, and, you know, you, you don't have any rights to say anything. So the agreement between the farmer, this is the text, I'm not going to go into all that. Under those MOUs, the, it says that we have rights as occupants. We have a right to uh, choose our own permittee, a farmer. You know, there are a lot of things in there, but it wasn't followed this year. These agreements uh, uh, between the occupant and the farmer, the total number of acres that's being farmed, we have bidding wars in our community. We have these huge farmers that farm up to 50,000 acres, and we stand by and watch these big trucks go by, and we don't participate. The only ones who get some benefit are the occupants. But that, you know, it's creating disparity between the non-land occupants. They're saying, well, you have land and I don't have land, and it's becoming, you know, a source of contention in the community. So an application was made to federal court, um, and it was heard on February 13th. An interim injunction was in place telling the band you can't do any status quo. You cannot do anything till this is heard. The federal court order said the status quo was to be maintained. Nobody's booting Henninger off or anybody else. And the council, uh, their decision to remove Yak Henninger was quashed. It was thrown out. And these are some of the things that uh, it said. Those MOUs were supposed to be in place until 2016 between occupants and Yak. But this year they changed it like that. One year. No consultation. So, you know, these were the things that were supposed to be in place. But some deals were made, you know. And I'll talk about lawyers in a few minutes. Um, And I know we have a couple of lawyers here, but I'm not going to pick on lawyers right now. The reason that we won in federal court was be, because the man's affidavit was simply uh, based on facts. Or he said, she said, and rumor wise. We won because we based it on law, case law. This is, you can't do this, you can't do that. And that's how we won. But it was a difficult uh, decision to make. Uh, the implications of the uh, court decision, and I'm just about done here. Um, it created a mistrust of our chief and council. I mean, we elected them, but they didn't listen to us after I mean, I was there. I was in court. I was, you know, we made appeals. I appealed to the bank lawyer, Joanne Crook, when this was all happening. I went to her office and I said... You're the lawyer. Can you do something conciliatory so you know where people can reconcile, you know, mm-hmm. work things out? And she said, "I'm." The, the assistant said, I can't talk to you. We only work for chief and council. We don't work for the people. So that, you know, threw that argument out. The implications. If, if they had lost, I mean if they had won, the concern that I had was it was going to be in the tens of millions what the bank was going to be soon. Who's going to be affected? My kids, my grandkids. Why would I want that to happen when you can go to a room and work things out? It, you know, it, it was so... You know, lawsuits. We're getting more and more lawsuits. People don't know how to work things out. These are the... Uh, I just want to get to my... And I have to do this one. (laughs) And then there's lawyers for chief and counsel. That's what they made in one year. Walsh. 830,000 in 2012. Almost the same in 2013. And can you imagine what it's going to be this year with all this trouble? It's an aboriginal industry. People are exploiting us because of our problems. And so, it's creating conflicts. Things that should be resolved between neighbors, family, whatever, are not because of this system that's in place, which nobody benefits from. So, this beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. That's what we have. We're dealing with people who take advantage of the uneducated. If we're going to be electing leaders, please don't go on Facebook and select your councilman. Be more responsible. Look for people who have some education, who have a heart, who have compassion, and who know what's happening globally, provincially, federally. Do not just go, because all I'm seeing, we haven't had any of the council respond in court they won't meet with people. And so this is these people are the ones benefiting. Shocking. Eh? So these are ways to resolve it. We need to find ways to work things out. I'm suggesting we set up an accord between farmers, occupants, non-land occupants, uh, government, all these people. Get together and work things out. Get from it educated, experienced people to give suggestions for the benefit of all. And there I am done. Thanks. <laughs> and this, this statement, those who have the privilege to know have a duty to act, Albert Einstein. I agreed to come here because I knew there would be university students. If you have the privilege to get a post secondary education, then you have a duty to <coughs> act. I see so many people in our communities who are scared to speak up, scared to act, because they'll be labeled. If you have an education and that kind of experience, then you you owe it to your people to do something. Thank you,
0: yeah, we'll give it, we'll give it to you, oh Well, Loesta, she's just so shy, we can't get a word out of her edgewise, but she's certainly <laughs> shared with us tonight, and that's much appreciated also. Hey, so next you can I just
1: turn there. the light on? Okay. Um, yeah, so I'll take this that, out, think, because yeah. mine is pretty much done.
0: Yeah. We can, we can, does Eugene want to use the PowerPoint? Uh, no. no. Okay, so we can just leave it there for now. i okay. will
1: just take this out. No.
0: Okay, our next speaker then is Eugene Fox. He's a fourth generation farmer. He's been farming on, er, since 1960s when his father Floyd fought with his Floyd, father Floyd Fox on the uh, blood reserve fairland. land. Um, from the 60s until 20. 20-